This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, good afternoon, and welcome to the 2020 Socialism Conference's Reparations and Settler Colonialism panel. My name is Simone Baptiste, and I will be moderating today. I'm a filmmaker and member of the DSALA um, chapter and also the DSA Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus. Afro-Soch advocates for and builds power with DSA's Black and POC membership and their communities. We pursue this work to help build a multiracial working class base, the only viable strategy for securing a socialist future. Through public and internal education and agitation, we aim to continue the legacy of the Black radical tradition, as well as the radical traditions of other oppressed minorities. Our goal is to act as a network that will support and develop non-white DSA members as leaders in the organization. Today, we have a very exciting program to share with all of you. The two panelists that will be joining us shortly here are phenomenal advocates for reparations and restitution as a means of restorative justice for the aftermath of colonialism and slavery in the United States. Our first panelist today is Bill Fletcher Jr. Bill Fletcher is a racial justice, labor, and international activist. He is also an author of the book, They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Over the years, he has been active in workplace and community struggles, as well as electoral campaigns. He has worked for several labor unions and has served as a senior staff person in the national AFL-CIO. Fletcher is the former president of TransAfrica Forum uh, and a senior scholar with the Institute for Public uh, for policy studies and an editorial board member of blackcommentator.com. Our second panelist today is Dina Gillia Whitaker. Dina is an award-winning journalist and columnist. She is from the Colville Confederated Tribes and she's a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos. Dina's research focuses on indigenous nationalism, self-determination, environmental justice, and education. She is the author of As Long As Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock, and co-author with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz of All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. So clearly both of our panelists today are very much into myth busting by their titles of their books alone. So Discovery Channel, if you are listening, uh, we might have a Mythbusters reboot on our hands uh, and I'm done. That's my last joke for today. But I think that, you know, this is an interesting day that we're convening on. Um, this holiday drums up very mixed emotions. Independence Day 1776 didn't mean independence and freedoms for all people in this country. It would be another 75 years after that for Congress to pass the Indian Appropriations Act, which created the Indian reservation system and the catastrophic results that followed and limited freedoms, if we even want to call it that. 
For African-Americans, it would be 87 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence that slaves in the South would be freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. And once again, I use the term freed very loosely as it was followed by hundreds of years of domestic terror. As we enter a new month following the tragic murder of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, we remember how important this fight truly is. This panel today gives me hope that we can continue a dialogue on reparations that may very soon become actionable. Uh, and this is for you know a restorative justice for crimes committed to Black and Indigenous people. Uh, so without further ado, uh, for those of you just joining, once again, this is the Reparations and Settler Colonialism panel for this year's Socialism Conference. So please join me in welcoming Bill Fletcher Jr. and Dina Gillia Whitaker. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hi, Dina. Uh, so, you know, this is um, this is an interesting time because reparations has been at the forefront of a lot of conversations, um, you know, since last year, really. I think it really kind of kicked up with the 2020 primary race. And so, um, you know, what's interesting is there's a lot of confusion about what reparations actually is. And so I wanted to first just start off by kind of getting a, or painting a picture of what reparations are, uh, why are they needed, and how does it relate to the Black and Indigenous communities in this country? So if either of you want to take that first question. Bill, why don't you go ahead? Um, well, okay, well, first of all, thank you, Simone. And, um, uh, Haymarket, uh, DSA, and Jacobin for uh, for sponsoring this. Um, so the issue of reparations is uh, is not new. Reparations itself speaks to repair, repairing damage for uh, atrocities that have been committed by one group against another, and usually it uh, focuses on. Uh, what nation states have done. Um, but it, uh, you know, for example, after wars, uh, the demand for reparations in the context of um, African-Americans uh, initially emerged after the uh, end of slavery and the, uh, the, the beginning of reconstruction, uh, the demands for 40 acres and a mule, uh, which was essentially a demand for land redistribution in the South and an opportunity for the former African slaves to actually become um, independent farmers. Uh, and uh, it was linked to the demand for real political democracy in, in, the, in the South. So reparations is not fundamentally about a check. It's not fundamentally about giving an individual certain things more than uh, more often it's a, it's a collective issue. And although that there is a debate uh, that has existed within the African-American movement about reparations, including uh, when does, when does the clock start and stop uh, whether it is something that should cover a group, uh, I mean, a uh, uh, particular segment of that Black America, whether it should be directed at individuals. I mean, fundamentally, it's about repairing the damage. And in my, my mind, 
it's repairing the damage not simply for slavery, but uh, there's a notion in the law of a continuing violation. And I would argue that we um, people of African descent are the victims of a continuing violation of white supremacist national oppression. Thank you, Bill. Um, and so, Dina, I know that in the American Indian and indigenous community, um, usually reparations are referred to as restitution as a way to decolonize um, these communities um, and the, oppress the oppression that followed that colonization. Um, do you want to speak towards that a little bit um, and maybe some restitutions that are sought out by the American Indian and indigenous communities? Yes, why peace nuxiel Dina Gilio Whitaker, and I'm coming to you in a um, with this traditional greeting from the the land, the unceded traditional territory of the Ahashiman people in or what is now called Orange County in Southern California. So, um, I, I would say that when we, the the term reparations is not a term that in Indian country we really use. Um, we use other terms. You know, you mentioned the term restitution is probably more uh, appropriate. Um, but but reparations is something that's really more associated with um, you know resolving the history of, of black oppression for African-Americans. That said, uh, that's not to say that we don't talk about how to, to bring his justice for historical wrongs. And so we can talk about that in a whole lot of different ways. And, um, and one the, so we, to frame the issue, we can talk about what do we mean when we say um, justice. And if you look at like justice studies, um, there's different kinds of ways that justice is framed. Um, you, we can talk about um, the two main kinds of justice that we that we are familiar with. For example. Um, um, restorative justice, as Bill was just kind of uh, referring to, um, and then also distributive justice. And so often distributive justice, and we, we can see this in our legal system, where the legal system really uh, is, is focused on that when it attempts to, to deliver justice to any group of people, it's usually in some kind of remunerative or remunerative terms. Um, and often the way that we hear reparations or that I hear reparations um, spoken about in the uh, black community is in this context. And this is where, Bill, I will appreciate to hear uh, if there is a different perspective on that. Um, but, but understanding reparations in distributive monetary terms is often what we associate with reparations. For Indian country, we, we have had periods of distributive justice, um, for example, in periods of land claim settlements, uh, we have uh, a brief period of that is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz has uh, studied this and I'm drawing on her research right now. Um, there is a period of a brief period of 
distributive justice and uh, via land claims in the mid 1800s, 1855, um, prior to the Civil War. And then we have a period of, of uh, land claim settlements that come in the 1940s. Um, just prior to this period of termination, of Indian termination, where the federal government um, sought to uh, discontinue its political relationship with tribal nations. And we have also a period in, um, you know, in the Obama administration where uh, um, that administration settled uh, a lot of land claims uh, in probably in an unprecedented way. Um, and that also included at that time what we know as the Cobell Settlement, which was um, not about uh, land claims, but about um, issuing, uh, it was the Cobell case in 2010 that issued this judgment for uh, leases of Indian lands over a period of 100 years that um, were never actually paid to the individual owners of those um, those allotments, those tribal lands. So there are a lot of different ways that we talk about, um, you know, restitution. Um, we could also talk about um, repatriation of of human remains, of uh, burial items, things like that, through the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, which was passed in the 1990s. Um, there are other ways that we can talk about how the federal government, the United States, has um, attempted to 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 bring justice, including land return. There have been uh, cases where land has been returned to tribes um, in the big scheme of things, it's not really very much, but uh, that these are all altogether ways that we talk about uh, how um, a restorative form of justice um, might be brought in, you know, also with a um, distributive framework of justice. Thank you, Dina. And, you know, it is very interesting to hear what have been the landmark attempts or what have been actually uh, redistributed. But I wanted to also hear from Bill um, I, what Dina prompted as a question about the distributive justice um, of reparations that's very much talked about in the Black community um, and the downfalls of that just, you know, boiling everything down to just being a check. So there's, um, there are circumstances that have been raised in, in the African-American movement where uh, distributive monetary justice has been the focal point. And uh, I'll give you uh, one major example and one emerging example. The major example is uh, the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, race pogrom of 1921 and the destruction that was carried out by white mobs against uh, the African-American community, particularly the business section, Greenwood community. Um, and so there have been ongoing demands that particularly uh, regained strength in the early 2000s. Uh, uh, Charles Ogletree uh, formerly from Harvard Law School, was one of the leading uh, voices in that. And basically, there was, a, there was a seeking compensation 
for the destruction that was wrought on the community. Um, and, and so that's focused on largely on uh, compensation. Um, uh, another example that has been raised much more recently uh, by a guy named Ernest Stefano is compensation for the remaining members of the uh, Negro baseball leagues and their families and their immediate descendants. Um, because as uh, Stefano and some others have pointed out, that as a result of demonstrable uh, racist discrimination that was carried out, the uh, careers of Negro League baseball players uh, resulted in much less compensation than their white counterparts in Major League Baseball. And so this is where um, the fights around individual, or the demands around individual compensation have been most clear, uh, clearly evidenced. Um, there are, in, as, uh, in addition to that, there is what I was raising before, which is uh, collective compensation. And uh, this is what's been raised by the National African-American Reparations Commission under the leadership of Dr. Ron Daniels. It's been raised by um, a, a number of different people uh, that, the, that in view of the massive scale of the racist and national oppression that African-Americans have faced that did not end in 1865, um, that there needs to be major compensation, major repair of the damage that has been created. Um, one of the first organizations to raise that, of course, was in COBRA, uh, the uh, major force in the African-American community that raised and um, really brought to the, brought to the fore uh, the issue of reparations. But there were always individuals in the um, African-American movement that raised this as well. Um, and there's currently a debate that has unfolded about whether the principal aspect of the fight around reparations is that to be carried out uh, in favor of individual reparations, uh, for, that is for individuals versus for the community. One of the problems there is uh, when, it, when it comes to individuals for the collective experience under slavery and post-slavery, uh, but particularly under slavery, is um, how does one identify the recipients? So in the case of, uh, that I was mentioned before about Tulsa, you're looking at a defined community, you're looking at people that live there, you're looking at their descendants that, that's traceable, much as the reparations that was, uh, that was offered to Japanese who were put in concentration camps in 1942 in the United States. When you're looking at the entire African-American experience, beginning at 1619, if you want to use that as a date, or the 1580s, uh, if you want to make reference to Sir Francis Drake and, what he, and his role, um, that becomes much more complicated. Thank you, Bill. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think um, what's interesting to me is uh, almost a year ago, I guess a little over a year ago, there was a congressional hearing, H.R. 40, um, to look into the possibility of researching the subject of reparations. Um, Do we see this as a viable direction to go in when it seems like there isn't even the agreement on whether we can do research into it? What are ways that maybe we can seek out the demands for reparations without that process, possibly? I know this is a little curveball, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. You're asking me or you're asking Dina? I'm asking you, Bill. (laughs) Okay, so I can't duck it. Um, No, I think that the fight around H.R. 40 uh, that was uh, raised for years by the late uh, Congressman Conyers and others is the right fight. It, it was an attempt, um, uh, you know, at, at, the, at a national level to say that this, that there must be a national discussion about reparations. Um, and particularly in a society that is guided by a philosophy that um, opposes history and embraces myth and a society that um, uh, emphasizes sort of the from now on notion that, uh, you know, I may have uh, destroyed and wiped out your family, but from now on, I commit myself not to be doing that. And And that's sort of the thinking in the United States uh, through uh, which has has justified uh, genocide against uh, the native peoples, the annexation of northern Mexico, enslavement of Africans, et cetera, et cetera, and that the idea that we should not keep raising these issues because we really need to put that aside and moving forward. And what Conyers, Randall Robinson, Queen Mother Moore, any number of people basically were pointing out Cobra, NARC, is that you can't move forward without addressing these fundamental injustices. So the fight around HR 40 is the right one. We need to, we need to make we need to make the issue of reparations um, an even more mass demand. But in a process, and, and this is this is like by way of a caution, I got into an an argument with someone uh, a few months back who was basically taking the position that reparation should only be for the descendants of slavery. And we, we hotly debated that. Um, uh, and then, but the second thing was this person was emphasizing the importance of reparations because in their case, they really needed some money. And I'm not exa- I'm not joking. I mean, basically, they were saying, "No, look, I I'm I really need some money, so I need some reparation." Um, well, you know, part of what I want to say is like, don't hold your breath. Um, this is not about simply pressuring, and then there's going to be a check. The the fight around reparations is really a fight around U.S. history, and as we can see now with the debates around uh, statues uh, and and Trump's white supremacist rhetoric, uh, what he's going to be saying today, uh, 
that this fight around U.S. history is very, very alive. And we need to engage it in reparations uh, is one means, not the only means, but one means of engaging that, that debate. Thank you. And thanks for that anecdote. Someone just wanted money. That's incredible. I'm glad that you were able to um, diplomatically to talk that person off the ledge. Um, so great. Can't make this I wanted up. to... <laughs> I wanted to pivot into our next piece here. Um, and Dina, I'll start with you. Um, so kind of taking from what Bill said, the uh, right wing uh, white supremacist kind of rhetoric around reparations and restitution, it seems to be uh, along, along the lines of, you know, this happened so long ago. This wasn't me. So why should I have to care anymore? It's been so long ago. Uh, so Let's talk about what are the present day impacts that colonialism has had um, on black and indigenous communities? Because if it was so long ago, then obviously there couldn't be anything present day that we're still facing. But um, I wanna get some insight from you, Dina, um, on what you have to say back to people who say that kind of stuff. Oh, when we talk about um, some things like systemic racism, and this is something that has been very interesting about the current moment that we have been as scholars, like we know that term, like we pretty much invented that term. We've been talking about it for years, but it's not something that you hear in the mainstream media a lot until now. Um, so I've been really, you know, it's such an interesting moment. Um, because we do hear that term now coming from the mouths of talking heads on, you know, mainstream media. And, um, and I'm glad for it. But the reason that we have that term is that it refers to structures that have been built through historical processes. So if we say that the importance of history is that the that the past constructs the present. That's why it's important. That's why it matters. Um, in, in a society like the United States that's founded on colonialism, we can see the foundation, we can see the foundation of, of uh, land that land invasion, land theft, and genocide being hand in hand with with processes of slavery, because without, without those prior processes, without invasion, land theft, and genocide, those are con the conditions of possibility for what became the transatlantic slave trade. So these are like the twin pillars of colonialism, or even capitalism, we could say. They, they are all intricately connected. but. Um, but we say that that in indigenous studies we talk about settler colonialism being a structure um, and systemic. It's a structure that it has as its end goal the elimination of the native, and it's always for the purpose of acquiring indigenous land, indigenous territory, and and so because of that, it lifts it out of history it's it's certainly it is part of history but it's not just history it's not uh, an event that ends at some point in time because it crystallizes into this structure so 
uh, for Native people, it's ongoing. Um, just as, as Bill was saying, with slavery, slavery is not something that ended the, the oppression of Black people. It's something that, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Settler colonialism is the same way. Um, and it has uh, coagulated into a legal system, a legal structure that is built on 19th century archaic ways of thinking that are very white supremacist, very religious supremacist. It is for Native people, white supremacy is not just about racial domination. It's not just about racial supremacy. It begins as actually religious supremacy. Um, And that's how it becomes encoded into federal law in the, in the federal Indian legal system. The very first legal uh, case that was argued to the Supreme Court that were, uh, was about Indians was in 1823 with the Johnson versus McIntosh decision, which, which became the first of three decisions that we call the Marshall Trilogy that laid the foundation for this system of federal Indian law that uh, completely dominates our lives and our lands to this day. Um, It's been called the most complex form of law in the United States. Um, But this this case, the Johnson versus McIntosh case, articulated the doctrine of discovery, which, uh, which Johnson, you know, in his opinion, connected directly to European Christianity um, and said, you know, that that European um, culture and European religion provided this apology for the taking of indigenous lands. Um, and that, that's at the, just the, the, the beginning point um, of where it goes from there. And, and this structure that maintains this relationship of domination over native people. So, um, uh, this is where we we depart. In fact, I can refer to um, a book that was written about 2005 by a Native scholar named Robert Williams called um, Like a Loaded Weapon. And he looks at the, the Rehnquist Court and he looks at Supreme Court decisions um, th- that uh, keep the language, uh, language of racism and white supremacy and how it keeps reinforcing itself in modern times um, against Native people where with, with uh, cases uh, regarding other people of color, especially Black people, the court has, has sloughed off that language. You know, they were able to overcome precedents like Plessy versus Ferguson, like um, Brown versus Board of Education and the Dred Scott decision, these kinds of things, so that they evolve um, language that recognizes rights for African-Americans. But it, they have not done that. With when it comes to Indian rights cases, so um, so because of this body of law of federal law that's extremely oppressive, that cre- that maintains this structure of paternalism over Native people, uh, and that and the fact that 
as Native people, we are not just ethnic minorities. We are nations with treaties with the federal government. Uh, we, we cannot be conflated into some broad monolithic category we might call people of color or ethnic minorities or something like that. There are important distinctions that, that need to be made. So, um, you know, this is something that we have, uh, that comes into this conversation. We're talking about things like reparations and, um, what Bill was talking about that, uh, HR 40 is something I'm not familiar with. I don't think that conversation in the Congress had anything to do with, with native people, um, nor should it. So when we, when there are these national conversations about reparations, um, they, they need to be treat ethnic minority communities different than what American Indian tribal nations, um, need. Simone, I just, I, I want to actually, um, pick up on this point. Okay. Because great. I think, I think that, um, the issue of understanding the broad category of reparations in the context of colonialism and, uh, and slavery is essential. And it, it means, among other things, that we're not just talking about African-American and indigenous people, we're, uh, or at least we shouldn't be. Uh, we should be talking about um, the populations that have been the victims of colonialism and uh, and so that, for example, that deals with uh, Puerto Ricans. Uh, it deals with Chicanos. It deals with Micronesians. In other words, you know, to borrow from Emilcar Cabral, the great uh, Cape Verdean Guinea-Bissau leader, and he, he he talked about the national liberation struggles were a fight to return people to their history that colonialism took people out of their own history and put them in someone else's. And, and so fund of, when, we're, when we're looking at this issue of reparations, um, there's a few very important points here. And, and one, I want to uh, just uh, double underline something that Dina was raising, which is that we're not all the same. We're all racialized, racialized populations. Um, that, that is clear. But we have very distinct histories. They're very complicated. And you can't just put us all in a box and say that there's one way of resolving it. So the HR 40 was specific to the African-American experience. Now, at some point, there's going to have to be a discussion about Puerto Rico and about how the United States mainland has destroyed the island. And, and, and Hawaii, we might say, too. That's absolutely. And, 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 but let me just focus on Puerto Rico for a second. The, the, the issue of genocide, objective genocide in, in the context of the, uh, the hurricane, Maria, and what, ha what happened. So, so, in other words, it's not like we are all fighting for the reparation slot, right? It's not like, you know, let's race to get to the front of the line because there's only a few goodies that we can get. So if we don't knock the Puerto Ricans out of the way, we won't get ours. We've got to link this as part of a, of a larger fight against racist and national oppression. But understanding the historical specificities 
of the different populations that have been victims of this system. And there are many people these days that, that don't really want to do that or have fallen prey to this notion of almost a, a hierarchy of oppressions. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad that you made that distinction because there has been a resurgence of reactionary nationalism that's taking place um, specifically in the black community. I can't speak on any other community, but, uh, you know, this idea that reparations for African-Americans should be excluding other black people in this country. And although the black community is not a monolith, Um, And our struggles are different um, depending on where your origins are. That doesn't necessarily mean that, yeah, there there is no hierarchy here. I think that that we should be fighting for the liberation of all peoples who have had a crime committed against them. Um, And Bill, I don't know if you wanted to touch upon that reactionary nationalism um, or not, um, but the floor is yours. Oh, absolutely. Um, In in the history of, of Black America, uh, and I use the term very generally, so uh, don't jam me, folks. Um, you've had, particularly in the, the 20th century, these recurring battles within our movement about one is who's black, um, and then uh, that and that that seems to happen every generation. There's a battle about are you black enough, and then the question is, well, like what does that mean? Um, and, and then most recently, we've had the, raise, uh, the rise of some forces that have said, have made the argument that uh, reparations is the right demand, but that the demand needs to be only for those who, were, uh, who can prove that they're the descendants of slaves, enslaved Africans. And, and so, as I was raising earlier, there's certain interesting issues there. One is that that basically means that the clock stops in 1865. It means that basically Black America post-1865 doesn't count. Um, And so that means that the uh, Caribbean migrants that came in uh, in the first decade of the 20th century, the Afro-Latino uh, uh, immigrants that came beginning in the, in the first decade of the uh, 20th century. Um, the Cape Verdeans who came in the 19th century, but came here not as slaves, that they don't count, that their experiences basically don't count because what only counts is one being the descendant of, a, of, of slavery. And then the question is, well, how much bloodline do you have to have? Um, in order to count and in order to be eligible for a check. This does not have a good ending. Um, You know, I've seen this movie before, and I'm telling you, it doesn't end well. uh, Indian country knows all about that. Thank you. And and I appreciate if you would actually, I really would appreciate if you could pick up on that, because it is, this is a, this is a very, very bad path. And, and uh, that, that uh, occurs again and again, and it takes and see one of the one of the things that I'm gonna shut up is that it it leads you to believe it leads some people to believe that once you get the check everything is resolved, right? Because basically, if you're saying that reparations is only about compensation for slavery, when you get a check, then what what next? What what happens? 
right? Uh, do you pay off your phone bill? I mean, what, what happens next? What happens to our communities? What happens to the continuing violation? It's not like white supremacist oppression ended in 1865, ended in 1877, or ended in 2020, right? So what do you do? And, and I think that's the weakness uh, of that analysis. But Dina, if you want to, I, I don't know, what, I don't want to put you on the spot. No, that, that's fine. I mean, we have in Indian country, we have a lot of experience with getting checks, right? Getting, getting that check, getting that payoff uh, as though it's the, 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 the end to, you know, the historic oppression, the, the injustices of the United States. It's never the end. It's never enough. And we still have this structure of oppression that we call settler colonialism crystallize in this legal system that is not just the legal system, but is shares, you know, similarities to the, what the black community experiences in terms of you know, police brutality and disproportionate representation in the criminal justice system and what we call the carceral state. So there's there's all these these uh, points of contact and similarity um, as far as t- what you were saying about tying, you know, uh, a payment or a payoff or reparations payment to bloodlines. Isn't it interesting that in the black community, you have something called the one drop rule, right? Mm-hmm. Historically, when you are, uh, when you have one drop of, in, of black blood, you are black, mm-hmm. thus subject to slavery, segregation, and all manner of racial policing. Um, and now, we have this conversation about, well, how much black blood do you have to have? These are conversations that as Native people, we have been living with for centuries, where mm-hmm. our identity, who we are as people, as Indian people, the racialization of who we are uh, is tied to these, these notions of blood, where blood is a stand-in for identity and culture. Um, we have worked very hard to debunk that. Um, yet it is still a standard that the federal government uses to to ultimately eliminate us. So we say that that the one drop rule, which has historically been applied to black people, is um, a way to to police the racial boundaries in order to protect white purity, right? And mm-hmm. thus white supremacy. Whereas blood quantum or the measuring infractions of one's and the racialization of one's identity through this construct of blood as the stand-in for identity um, is ultimately uh, a a mechanism of elimination. Mm -hmm. So, and it's been used for a really long time. And so, um, and it's still in place. Like if you don't have, you know, the requisite amount of blood um, then you don't count as a real Indian. Our mine and Roxanne's book was all about that. And by the way, I wanted to say that um, Bill, Bill's book about bankruptcy and twenty other myths about uh, you know they're bankrupting us and twenty other myths about um, you know 
in that Brilliant. that uh, title um, is our book, Minor Roxanne's book, is in the same series. That's why it has the same title. Right. So I just wanted to just uh, uh, wanted to clear that up. But but we are talking about you know with if if this same kind of logic is being applied to the black community, this is a way to exclude as many people as possible um, from receiving whatever kind of payment might ever be distributed. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just, just to understand that, I mean, they are, and I think that you're right, Bill, that what this conversation is about is, is, delivering some form of of restitution that you can call justice reparations call it good and say everything's fine just like having eight years of a black president was imagined to to deliver you know the final post-racial state which of course we know did not happen and in fact maybe even contributed maybe even did some damage because here we are um, Mm -hmm. with this massive massive reaction uh, and 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 complete knee-jerk white supremacist kind of rhetoric that we're having now in a president that is openly white supremacist uh, and supports the KKK and support does horrendous things like go to Tulsa and, you know, the, the site of one of the worst race riots in the, in, in the country in history, and then goes to, you know, South Dakota to the Pahasapa to the most sacred place in the world, in the Lakota world to do a rally on, you know, 4th of July. Um, despite, you know, and, and, and you know, that he knows, he knows what the significance of that is. And so it becomes then symbolic of a a bigger message that's being conveyed, which is really um, just a a massive act of anti-Indianism. And just as the, the Tulsa rally was, uh, was an, was a symbolic act of anti-black racism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, So I wanted to move into this last piece and it kind of ties into what we were just talking about, which is, you know, the idea that a a check is a one and done solution for the systematic oppression of minority groups in this country is um, absolutely a farce. Um, And when we talk about uh, reparations, can we talk about also structural changes um, since racism and white supremacy are structures of capitalism in a sense. And so um, when we talk about, uh, you know, what's happening right now as, you had mentioned uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement and um, with this huge uprising um, because of the uh, over-policing of Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. Uh, So would defunding or abolishing the police be an example, I guess, of uh, dismantling a system of oppression? Uh, But is it an ongoing process, an ongoing project, I guess, um, with the regards to other systems of oppression beyond the police. Who are you asking? Oh, well, I, I guess, uh, sorry, that's my fault. So Bill, do you want to start this one off since Dina just um, answered the last one? Um, sure. Uh, 
So there's no society on this planet that uh, I'm familiar with that has no police. And we, are, we live under capitalism. And so you know there's going to be police. Um, but I think that one, depending on how one defines defunding the police or abolishing the police, in my mind, it comes down to four things. Uh, rethinking, restructuring, reallocating, and demilitarizing. And these are demands that I think can and should be put forward now. Uh, I think that that's one interpretation of the demands of people that we see uh, protesting. Um, that, that ultimately, though, you're talking about um, a restructuring of society. And so I think that that's where, as people on the left, when we're thinking about reparations with a small r, by which I mean repairing the damage for settler colonialism, repairing the damage of slavery, et cetera, um, that you're talking about the need to connect that to a movement for what a number of people have called the third reconstruction, and frankly, ultimately for socialism, that, that the demand for repairing the damage is directly related to uh, social transformation. And so it's not a struggle that stands outside of the larger battle, the social transformation. Uh, it's not an add-on, it's not an appendix, it's part of, that, uh, a part of that process. And I think that that is a critical thing as we go forward. And it's one of the reasons that we on the left need to embrace the fight for reparations, just as we should be embracing fight for self-determination, uh, just as we should be embracing f uh, the fight for other forms of restorative justice, um, you know, for, uh, for particularly for indigenous people, for colonized people. These need to be part and parcel of the socialist program. Now, unfortunately, in the history of the U.S. left, the white segment of the U.S. left has been a bit uh, ambivalent, let's say, about how to take on racist and national oppression and, and has uh, frequently uh, seen such issues as diversionary, um, unrealistic, uh, as divisive in some cases. And so within the left, we have to uh, carry out that fight. And that fight is a reflection of the larger fight in U.S. society that I was mentioning before about a, um, the fight around the significance of history, the fight around the, the reality that we're living, we're living on the shoulders of history. We're not living in the absence of history. And, and so this fight is a fight that we've got to take up at a mass level. When you have Trump doing what he's going to be doing today, uh, you know, he is reaffirming supremacy, white supremacy over the indigenous. He is reaffirming white supremacy as the guiding philosophy of the society. He's reaffirming the notion of the white republic. Um, if this isn't central to the socialist program, I don't know what is. Thank you, Bill. Um, this brings me to my next question. Um, 
So the idea of a universal demand, which I think the left loves to you know coalesce around, uh, we shouldn't be fighting for something unless it's a universal demand because it's therefore too divisive. Um, what what do you have to say to that argument? Um, meaning, is it worth a fight if you might not be part of the oppressed group that you're fighting for? Um, is there still um, relevancy to that demand, even if it is not a universal demand? And how can someone who is not a part of that oppressed group see themselves in the fight and see it as still a benefit to them to fight for something like reparations or restitution? And Dina, if you want to take this one, um, we can go that way. Cool. Okay. Here's what I'm thinking is that however we talk about justice, in a settler state like the United States, everything is still happening on indigenous lands. Like we cannot lose sight of that. Whatever we talk about, whether it's black reparations, whether it's um, justice for colonized, different kinds of colonized peoples, it still occurs within the context of the state, right? And all of that is within the history of lands that were stolen, most of which were stolen by indi from indigenous peoples by the state and who still maintain claims to those lands. So, so how do we imagine structures of justice or, or uh, imparting justice while keeping that into, in context? How do we, how do we build an ethic to, to in, to, that's, that takes into account that history, that respects indigenous land tenure, that seeks to, to return land to native people because that can't be off the table, right? We, can't, we can say that settler people, we accept that they're not going back to their countries, right? To their, to Europe or wherever they came from. So we all have to live here and imagine a better kind of future for all of us. But how do we do that while also um, building a, a relationship to the land that is um, authentic, that respects the environment, that doesn't continue to uh, use it in extractive ways that doesn't exploit it for capitalist purposes. How do we, how do we have, how are we accountable to each other and how are we accountable to that history? How do people of color talk about justice in ways that aren't complicit with settler colonialism? That's what concerns me. Um, and, and sometimes the, and all too often these conversations about justice for other people of color sort of bypass that history and the reality of us still being here on uh, stolen land in the midst of people who are completely dispossessed of their their homelands, especially in places here like California, um, and so many other places. But but to me, that's the real the real challenge. How do we build a movement of, of justice that supports each other while not continuing to um, perpetuate the structure of settler colonialism? 
And I think that's the hardest question. I, to be honest, I think that uh, as a country, we are much more willing and able to talk about racism using racial uh, injustice and justice as the framework for resolving these historical processes far more than we are able to talk about what it means to be in a country built on genocide and stolen land. I think we are nowhere near having that conversation, but that's the conversation we need to be having. I agree. I I, I want to just jump in and say I'm in total agreement. Um, And uh, I just want to elaborate two points. One is about universal demand that you were raising, Simone, that uh, someone on the left believe that there's this um, great thing that will bring us all together and, uh, and, and uh, people will just look at this demand and say, oh, my God, I, yes, regardless of anything else, this will, this will join us. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, there are universal demands in the sense that there are great demands like Medicare for all and housing uh, for all, et cetera. All those things are important. But the reality of U.S. history is that every demand that's been won has been won and seen through the prism of race and implemented in one way or another through the prism of race, uh, whether it's voting rights or housing or whatever. So if you don't factor that in, in the nature of the demand, you're uh, cruising for a bruising. So that's one point. The second point is that is a point that I made uh, a week or so ago, an interview with um, Jacobin, with Bhaskar at, at Jacobin. And it relates directly to what Dina was raising. And it's a very difficult emotional point in some ways for me, um, which was uh, I sort of became very politicized um, in reading W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America published in 1935, still in print, still an incredible book uh, that, that breaks down all of these myths that were in connection with Reconstruction and shows how important a moment it was in U.S. history. The problem, though, was a problem that I felt reluctant to raise for a very long time because, I mean, who am I to, to critique Du Bois? I mean, you, know, you don't critique geniuses. Um, but when you read Black Reconstruction in America, one of the issues, and this also affected some subsequent interpretations, is that one is left to uh, the, the possible conclusion that had Reconstruction succeeded, how we define succeed, success is important. Had it, uh, had it succeeded, that we would have had a democratic republic in the United States. And had it succeeded in truly emancipating African-Americans. And one of the things I realized is that Du Bois was not factoring in that while Reconstruction was going on, uh, U.S. troops, some of the same troops that had fight to destroy Confederacy, an example led by Philip Sheridan, were going to war with Western tribes, annihilating them, right? I mean, and, and, and you had that, and you had 
At the same time the reconstruction was going on, the consolidation of the annexation of northern Mexico. So the question that that raised, which relates very much to what Dean was saying, is that essentially how could you have a democracy if in reality you still had the annexation and you still had this genocide being committed against the indigenous? And I think that the answer is you couldn't. Unless Reconstruction had in fact triggered a broader movement, in fact, a revolutionary movement, which it could very well have under certain circumstances, it, it would not have brought forth a kind of uh, a democratic republic even under capitalism. And so I think that we in the left in the 21st century have to take to heart what Dina is raising. And, and many of us in the African-American movement have to really think about this when we have raised the issue of self-determination and, and about land. Because yes, I would argue we are absolutely entitled to land and it's part of demand for reparations, but hold your horses for a second because the reality was we were enslaved here on land that wasn't ours. It wasn't that we were enslaved in Nigeria or the Guinea-Bissau and, and achieved national liberation. We were grabbed, we were stolen from the continent and brought here enslaved, became a people, an African-American people, but on land that wasn't originally ours. And this makes this whole self-determination fight much more complex than many of us have been willing to admit. That is an incredible realization that I'm just realizing right now. Um, thank you so much, Bill, for bringing that context to the conversation. Uh, we are at the end of our hour portion of this panel. So I wanted to uh, open the discussion for Q&A. And first and foremost, um, I wanted to implement some progressive stack. I know we're on a webinar, but I wanted to bring in someone who is First Nations and someone who is a dear friend of mine um, that wants to speak a little bit about her own experience and also um, prompt a question. Uh, and this came about simply because um, I'm a filmmaker. I made a film about reparations that kind of showed the downfalls of just distributing a check for $16,000. And then my friend was like, hey, I'm literally getting a check for $16,000, um, you know, as a form of reparations. And what is that even going to really do for me? Um, and she'll be able to elaborate and explain um, from her point of view. And so I'd like to welcome Monique Moreau to the conversation. Are right, you on mute? I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I made note to do that too, to unmute myself. Um, you guys can hear me? Yes. Okay. So um, I thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I'm First Nations Canadian. I'm Korean Soto. And uh, there's a, a lot of Americans don't really know about this, but in Canada, there was a thing called the 60s scoop, which is where the Canadian government took indigenous children, like uh, uh, native uh, Inuit, Métis, and placed them with uh, white families. And it was called the 60s scoop because in the 50s and 60s, the, the RCMP would literally come in and scoop up children from their mother's arms and place them and adopt them out to white families. And 
In my case, I was born in the 80s and the government just had social workers coerce Indigenous mothers into placing uh, children like me with uh, white families. So I actually grew up, grew up outside of my culture uh, because of this. And my mother did not want to give me up for adoption. And in my adoption records, it actually states that she was against it the entire time. So uh, recently, in the past 10 years, there's been um, a call to action in the community to uh, receive uh, recuperation from the government. And it came in the form of actually like a $16,000 check just Monday, actually. (laughs) I got it on this past Monday. And for me, it's been a very emotional situation, just going through the whole process and looking at my adoption records. And it's been pretty difficult to deal with emotionally, just knowing the the full scope of how damaging colonialization is and how colonialism has affected me personally. I think growing up in a white family, I just always felt like it was something that was happening to someone else, like not really happening to me. And it's, you guys touched on this before. It's like, you know, indigenous people are used to getting checks. Um, I think Dina said that, uh, you know, I've had checks for like land claim settlements just show up at my, (laughs) at my mailbox. It's like $5,000 for some random reason. But I, and then uh, it's like, I, I don't know what this money even means in the scope of my life. Like I'm going to buy a new iPhone with this money. Like I, I guess my question really, cause it's just such a big scope of uh, reparations and recuperations, just such a giant scope um, when it comes to America and Canada. Um, I think that my question is like, what, what do we fight for in addition to financial recuperations, reparations specifically? I know you touched on it throughout this whole panel, but I just wanted to hear just like a couple points from both of you, if I could. Thank you, Monique. That's, you know, I think um, a lot of people who are in the chat also have this question as well. Um, you know, how do we make this a material thing instead of, you know, a conceptual talking point? But I want to also um, allow Dina and Bill to address your question about, you know, what can we be fighting for in addition to monetary recuperations? I'll go. Yeah. Um, I mean, I deal with this all the time. I'm working on it in my writing, in my teaching, all the time thinking about this. What, you know, what does justice actually look like? From an American Indian perspective, it looks like a lot of different things. Um, it looks like decolonization, and we can call, we can talk about that in terms of dismantling the settler state. Um, or at least the the mechanisms that maintain that paternalistic relationship that we have with the state, um, which really means going back to the treaty relationship. We have hundreds of treaties and hundreds of years of uh, agreements that have been made uh, between, you know, in good faith between the federal government and Europeans before that, um, that, that don't expire. These things don't expire. And um, that's, that's the bottom line. That's like number one, like we need to go back to that. Um, but, but more than that, how do we, how do we work uh, a, a sort of consciousness uh, uh, like a 
critical consciousness into American society, into the fabric, the social fabric of the United States. We have to do that through education. We have to, we cannot be erased. We are systematically erased in the education system, in media, in every, every uh, index of social life in the United States. We are absent. Um, That has to change. But also, we we have to start from a place that where we're at right now in what we would call the mass sixth mass extinction event. Um, we are dealing with climate change. We are all subject now to a catastrophic future. We are all living on land that's been poisoned. Um, we are all fighting against um, fossil fuel. Uh, and other extractive industry that uh, that poison our communities, um, we are all subject to these processes, and so um, so we have that in common. So how do we um, how how can we get to a place where we are working linked arm in arm together to oppose those those um, forces? And um, ultimately, you know. If you look at society, if society is to look at indigenous people, the definition of indigeneity is ultimately sustainability because we have been on these lands living sustainably for over 15,000 years. Um, That is real knowledge about what it takes to maintain communities within the constraints of given ecosystems. We have that knowledge. We still have it. And so if society can accept that, if we can re- we still have that knowledge, but mainstream society needs to be able to acknowledge that, needs to accept it, to look to indigenous communities to uh, for that knowledge about how to live sustainably on this land. I mean, that's really what's being called for here. We can't talk about justice without talking about environmental justice, um, not just for Native people, but for everybody and for the land itself, because we are uh, we are at that tipping point and we we are all of our futures are at stake here. And indigenous knowledge holds the key to that. So this is not just feel good. Let's let's do right by the Indians. No, it's that Native people have the knowledge, uh, key key knowledge to get us through this time, to get us out of it, or to at least to at least adapt to the changes that are coming. Thank you, Dina, and thank you, Monique, for sharing that story with us. Uh, thank you. Awesome. So let's go and dive into the rest of this Q and A. Um, so there was a question um, from John O, which I think would be good for um, Bill to answer. Um, it is: Shouldn't African nations also be paid for reparations for the damage of slavery and colonialism, or is it this only within the constructed boundaries of the United States? Before I answer, I I just want to say, Simone, you're being very modest. Your film is quite good. Um, Oh, thank you. I I don't know what kind of distribution you've had, but um, it it is a very interesting satire and political education piece. 
And it is absolutely worth people watching. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. So um, you, you got to be a little less modest, Simone. Uh, okay. From now on, I will just talk about it constantly. Great. Good. So, Good. You do that. Okay. You do that. And, and if anyone gets in your case, you say Fletcher said to do that. Um, <laughs> so, so I want to answer that question, but I want to first say something in relationship to the last point. Um, in 1999, I had the opportunity and honor to meet uh, Fidel Castro. I was on a delegation to Cuba. And he said to our delegation, when we won, we thought that all we needed to do was eliminate racial discrimination. So we did. Said we changed all the laws, opened up everything. And then he looked at each of us and said, but we were wrong. Um, what we did not factor in was 500 years of Spanish colonialism and nearly 100 years of the U.S. neocolonialism and impacted that head on race. And I regularly think about that because when we're talking about reparations, when we're talking about repair, we're talking about repairing damage that was created over centuries. So that's talking about major, major investment, major education, allocation of resources, things along those lines. Um, and, and, and if you think about what happened in Europe and Japan after World War II, what we're talking about dwarfs that. Um, because it's not just about repairing buildings. It's about repairing um, society. Uh, so to the question about African nations, um, I would say it's not just African nations that the colonial, the former colonial world and, uh, and Latin America um, uh, absolutely needs to gain from repairing the damage done by uh, Europe and the United States. Um, there are some uh, very immediate examples. For example, uh, one example is that uh, in Vietnam and Angola, you have huge numbers of landmines that have, uh, and, and Afghanistan is a third country, and huge numbers of landmines and that have had this incredible, uh, incredibly destructive impact on, on these countries. Um, you have in, in uh, Vietnam the, the, the uh, ramifications of Agent Orange. And this is in the last 50 years. Um, so the answer to your point is yes, that uh, much damage needs to be repaired. And in the case of Africa, in addition to the ramifications of the slave trade, we have the division of the continent under colonialism and these bizarre boundaries that were created that African countries are living with today and, and which have often fueled much of the conflict on the continent. Um, now, the people of the continent will fundamentally have to resolve the question. But, but when they are in tremendous debt to the International Monetary Fund, to uh, various countries, it basically makes it impossible for them to pull out of the hole. And that's one of the reasons that we in the global north have an absolute moral and political obligation 
to go up against and support all demands uh, for the removal of the debt uh, and, and, and other forms of, of this continuing violation that I mentioned earlier. Thank you, Bill. Um, we have another question um, from Pamela Twist, and I think this one, um, both panelists are asked to answer, but I think um, we can start with Dina since Bill answered the last one. Um, so the country of New Zealand has taken steps to return land and negotiate reparations with Maori peoples. Do our panelists think this offers a good example? Why or why not? New Zealand is a great example of, um, and it's a little bit different than the U.S. Um, because the Maori population is 15% of the entire country. That's a significant population that's probably a, roughly about the black uh, equivalent to the black population in this country. So there, because of the numbers of people there, there's political power that goes with that. Uh, in the United States, native people are like one to 2% of the population, which, which keeps us in, in really weakened positions. Um, but, but New Zealand is, uh, is uh, a place that we constantly look toward for examples of decolonization uh, and um, the resurgence of indigenous knowledge. They, they are, uh, they're ahead of us in many ways, uh, and and it's still not perfect. Um, they they still deal with you know oppressions from the the federal government, um, but in general they're more visible. They have a president right now. Um, uh, what is her name? Ahern, Jacinda Ahern, or something like that, who is uh, an, a person of incredible conscience. Uh, she has led her country into a state of no COVID. I mean, her leadership has been incredible, and uh, so I think that that they are a, a very good example. We we also have the example in New Zealand of the uh, the rights of nature being implemented. They have given actual personhood to one of their most sacred rivers and one of their most sacred mountains. So um, that's an example. I've actually written about it in my book um, that is provides a way for us to look at how we can can uh, uh, deal with our own kinds of um, problems around environment and and extractive industries and stuff like that. Um, it's it's a long shot in this country. We're nowhere near that, but we have New Zealand to to look toward for that. Um, so yeah, it's they they have they're different, but they definitely have some things that we can look at for um, examples of justice. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so we are about 10 minutes until the end of this session. So I wanted to give time for any final remarks from either you, Bill or Dina. Um, just, you know, some takeaways uh, that maybe people can find as resources um, on the subject, um, maybe where they can find some of your own work on the subject. Um, yeah. So, D Bill, if you want to go first. Um, well, this is this has been a pleasure and an honor. Um, I 
uh, I guess I want to emphasize this, uh, this point I was raising before, but I, I just want to double on underline it. Um, the experience of racialized populations uh, share much in common, but they also have many differences. Um, we should neither exaggerate the differences nor, um, nor ignore the differences. Um, we have to recognize those things that we share in common in fights against racism and national oppression, um, but also hold up our respective histories and also understand how complex our histories are vis-a-vis -vis one another. Um, you know, that, that, this, that there is this impulse that has been propagated under uh, the settler state to say to the oppressed that we're in this constant game of musical chairs where there's always one less chair than there are people playing Therefore, the fight is for whoever can grab that chair first. And, and I think that we have to understand that that's not the game we're prepared to play. Um, we're going to change the number of chairs and we're going to change the music. And so, so there's this different framework among racialized populations that we've got to, we've got to appreciate that anti-Black racism is not the same as the racism that's carried out against the indigenous, which is not the same as the racism carried out against Puerto Ricans, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that any of these it, um, trumps the other, no pun intended. Um, and so I think that this allows us to really think strategically in terms of the kind of alliances that need to be built. And it also says to us that this framework needs to be central to the way that the left thinks of its role as an emancipatory project, that our politics have to be fundamentally emancipatory. And that is a fight for consistent democracy, for self-determination, for repairing the damage that has been done, for not ignoring the history, but not operating on the basis of guilt, operating on the basis of we have a responsibility and that socialism should be our way of putting into practice repairing the damage that has been done to this planet and to its people. Absolutely. Um, and Dina, do you have any closing remarks as well? Yeah, I think to, to, to add to what Bill was saying, in in Indian country, in indigenous societies, we have uh, we have different worldviews. We have different epistemologies than that of the settler, the the Eurocentric uh, settler state that we live in. We often talk about, uh, you know, in in the United States, we we say it's a rights based society. We're always, uh, you know, fixated on our rights, our individual rights. Um, but it's the opposite in in indigenous societies in native societies um, we our our societies are based on a worldview of relationality of uh, of our relationship to each other of our relationship to the earth to the natural world to our ecosystems and uh, and what that means is that that it's a society 
they are societies based on responsibility. So the orientation is not to, you know, is not fixated on what our rights are, but on what our responsibilities are. And so this is one of the things that I was, you know, trying to convey earlier about indigenous knowledge and what it has to, to teach our country, to teach the world really, um, and how we, how it can guide us to a survivable future um, and stronger relationships with each other. So um, understanding that we have, uh, that that's what accountability is. That's what we don't have anywhere in the, the, the consciousness of the United States. There's no real sense of accountability, certainly not to the land or to each other. So, uh, I think that that that's you know again one of the things that that indigenous knowledge one of the lessons that that can be imparted um, and how we join together to imagine a different kind of a future um, and it's something that I I do in my in my teaching with my students um, I teach a class called traditional ecological knowledge and. Most of my students are non-Native people. They've never taken a Native Studies class. And I begin that class, which we, we what we do is it's community-based. We go out into the communities, into Native communities, onto the land, and they learn from Native people. Um, but at the beginning of the semester, I ask them, I have them write a real quick paper, and I say, what is your relationship to land and place and to Indigenous people? And of course, it's a uh, question they've never been asked before. They've never thought about it. And so it gets them to, to having to think about it in, in a way that they've never really thought about before. Um, then for 16 weeks, we are immersed in indigenous knowledge and they're exposed to, to ideas that they've never been exposed to. And then at the end of the, the semester, I ask them that question again, and I have them write a quick paper. What is your relationship to land and place? And it has it changed since the last time you asked that question? And if so, how? Um, and by and large, uh, the vast majority of them report significant changes in their thinking and their uh, how they understand themselves and their relationships relationship to place. And now they know who the indigenous people are of their, their place, and they understand principles of sustainability and worldviews that, that hold hope for a better future. Um, so from my experience teaching, I know that exposing people to a different kind of worldview has an impact, and it has it holds out possibility and hope for for change on uh, broader scales and um, and that's that's what I'm working on and that's where uh, that's where I put my focus it's the young people that I have the faith in and that's uh, that's you know that's really where our our future lies so those are the people that we need to to be really teaching Wonderful. And so you can find Bill Fletcher Jr. at Bill Fletcher Jr. on Twitter and Dina Jillia Whitaker at Dina G. Witt 
on Twitter, and I wanted to take some time to thank Haymarket Books, uh, Dana Blanchard, who was instrumental in putting this panel together, uh, DSA, of course, and Jacobin for um, being sponsors of this conference. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Dina. This was an incredible conversation today. I'm sure a lot of people learned a great deal and um, hopefully we'll do, you know, research on their own time as well to figure out how to further these conversations on reparations. And last plug, um, the DSA Afro-Socialist Caucus. Um, if you're interested in joining, we do talk a great deal about reparations in that caucus. Um, so if you want to join us, uh, that'd be the place to do it. So thank you everyone once again and have a great rest of your afternoon. We have one announcement that I almost forgot, Dana. Please don't hate me. Okay. <laughs> so the uh, last session starts 15 minutes after this one and there will be a link in the chat. So uh, go ahead and click on that link and take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.